right, guys. So I'm hopefully you got the manuscript in your email. Um, it gives you a chance to make some notes. I might ad lib a little bit. So if I go off of it, just keep following along. I'll come back to the script. Um, a couple things that I I'm trying to do. There's notes at the top of the uh, first two pages. You can see what I'm trying to like pull off in this message. Um, I think I've done it. Um, but I feel like this message still needs something more. So you let me know what that is. Thanks so much. Um, I'm starting on page three where it says hook. On June 3rd, 2017, Alex Honnold climbed the nearly 3,000-foot route of El Capitan named Freerider without a rope. And if you're unfamiliar with the story or with this mountain, I want to give you a few pictures of just how big it is. The average person that climbs El Cap is an elite rock climber and spends three to five days covering the thousands of feet of the climbing route. They come prepared with tents, bags, snacks, climbing harnesses, and oh yeah, rope. Alex, on the other hand, spent the night in his customized van that he serves as his mobile base camp. He rose in the dark. He dressed in his favorite red t-shirt and his cut-off nylon pants. He ate his standard breakfast of oats, flax, chia seeds, and blueberries before driving to the El Capitan Meadow. He parked his van and hiked up the boulder-strewn path to the base of the cliff where he pulled, where he, where he pulled on a pair of sticky-shouled climbing shoes, fastened a small bag of chalk around his waist to keep his hands dry, found his first toehold, and he began inching his way toward climbing history. Honnold began his historic ropeless climb in the pink light of dawn at 5.32 a.m. He ascended the peak in 3 hours and 56 minutes, taking the moderate pitch at a near run, and at 9.28 a.m., under a blue sky and a few wisps of clouds, he pulled his body over the rocky lip summit and stood on a sandy ledge the size of a small child's bedroom. When asked about the risk of climbing, he said, I don't view it as risky. Or at least any more risky than the other things I do. Risk is made up of two factors, consequence and the chance of failure. When it comes to free soloing, the consequence is obviously high because if I fall from 2,000 feet, the results are catastrophic and I die. But for me, the chance of failure is low because I've climbed it, I've trained for it, I've memorized the mountain down to every step that I'll take and every hold that I'll have. Could something go wrong? Yes. Will something go wrong? Probably not. Therefore, for me, the risk is low even though the consequences are great. What I want to talk to you this morning about this morning is the risk of generosity. The risk of giving something and it being misused. The risk of your generosity not helping somebody. The risk of your generosity possibly hurting somebody. The risk of generosity leaving you in the end, uh, hurting you in the end, leaving you bitter and broke. And if you're just joining us for our Diversify series, here's the premise. Generosity changes everything. And I've said that over the past couple of weeks. Um, I said that oh, I've said over the past couple of weeks that we don't just believe that because we're crazy, but we believe generosity can change everything because generosity did change everything. The early church started as a group of roughly a hundred people that poured out of an attic convinced of two things. One, Jesus had risen from the dead. They believed it because they knew him. They followed him. They watched him get arrested. They watched him be sentenced to death. And then they watched him hang on a cross for hours until eventually he suffocated on the blood, filling his lungs. But then three days later and over the next 40 days, multiple times, they spent time with a man who had been dead but now was alive. And yes, they had, he had nail-scarred hands and feet, but he was living, breathing, and alive. 
The second thing they were convinced of was that if Jesus could predict his own death, burial, and resurrection, that he could be trusted with whatever else he had said. And so they started applying the teachings of Jesus that they understood. They remembered the time just a few months prior when Jesus began teaching his closest disciples what it meant for him to be Israel's Messiah because it's not what anybody really expected. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter came up with what seemed like the right answer. He said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. But then over a conversation, it becomes clear that Peter's thinking about a king who's going to reign victoriously through military power. And Jesus challenges Peter. He said, yes, I am going to become king, but not in that way. And so Jesus starts to teach them on themes from the prophet Isaiah, who said that the Messianic king would have to suffer and die for the sins of his people. See, Jesus was positioning himself as a Messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant who would lay down his life for Israel and the nations. Peter and his disciples, mostly, they don't get it. And so Jesus enters into the fourth block of teaching in recent days, where, um, and, and these teachings are all about the upside-down nature of the Messianic kingdom, which turns upside down all of our value systems here in 2019. So in Matthew 18-20, through 20, Matthew records that in the community of the servant king, you gain honor... By serving others. And instead of getting revenge, you forgive and you do good to your enemies. And in Jesus' kingdom, you gain true wealth by giving your wealth away to the poor. And to follow the servant Messiah, you must be a servant yourself. Not only did Jesus believe in a re- not only did the followers of Jesus believe in a resurrected Jesus, they believed that if they followed what he said, that he would take care of them because God had taken care of him. In the first few hundred years of the church, what changed everything, I believe, the thing that in today's church has the power to change everything is generosity. In week one, I made a case for the idea that generosity changes everything. And then last week, we learned four steps to glad-hearted generosity um, instead of being people who deal with guilt-based generosity. If you missed either of those, I'd encourage you to go back and watch or listen because I believe they'll be helpful for you as you move your life forward. Hey, one quick note. I need to go back and make that transition clearer from the previous page to this one. Anyway, um, if you have thoughts on that, let me know. Uh, But here's the problem. Jesus' teaching doesn't stop at sell everything and give it to the poor. Well, I wish the Bible, or really all of that, all of life for that matter, was that black and white. It just isn't. The command that Jesus gave was to an individual labeled as the rich young ruler. And he asked Jesus what he, what he, specifically him, must do in order to follow Jesus. And knowing the man and his temptation to count on his wealth, Jesus says, you sell it all and you give it away. And Matthew tells us in the next few verses that the man walked away because he wouldn't do what Jesus had told him to because of what it would cost him. For us, we have to be careful not to get hyper-focused on that one statement that he made to one person, but to take a broader approach to all that Jesus taught us on money. For example, just a few days later, Jesus also talked about stewardship and responsibility and this idea that we're supposed to manage the resources we've been given, not just waste them. This teaching can be found in Matthew 25, 14. It starts this way. He says, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and he entrusted his money to them And while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. 
And one point of clarity here, the value of these bags of money has been debated by scholars. It's estimated that it's equal to anywhere from like $10,000 to millions of dollars. The Greek word used to represent money was the word talent, and from the studying I've done, a talent represents 20 years of a day laborer's wage. So if we fast forward that into today, the average salary in America is 50 grand. So each talent or bag of soy would be worth 20 times that or a million dollars. Regardless of who was right about the value of the bags of money, the point is that they're highly valuable. The story keeps going. The servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money and he earned five more. The servant who um, had got two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received one bag of silver dug a hole and hid, dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. And after a long time, the master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they used his money. The servant to whom he entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more. And he said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. He said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. Now I will give you many more responsibilities. Come, let's celebrate together. And the servant who received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done. My good and faithful servant, you have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Notice that the praise did not change based on the value because they had worked what he had given them and had a reward for him. And then the servant who had one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man. See, you harvest crops that you don't plant at times and you gather crops you didn't cultivate and I was afraid I would lose your money, so I just hid it in the earth. Look, Here is your money back. The master replied, You wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and and I gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. Because here's the principle you need to understand. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But to those who do nothing, even what little they have, will be taken away. There's three things that I want you to get from that story as it applies to generosity this morning. One, we have to give an account of how we use it. Two, if we use it well, we can gain even more. And three, if we waste it, we'll lose it. So as we think about being generous, we need to be aware of the risks. Are there times when helping can actually hurt and do more damage than good? If so, how do we minimize the risk of generosity and maximize the possibilities? Lastly, how do we know when it's time to open the floodgates and be abundantly generous? See, here's the thing. Even if you're not a Christian this morning, um, can be helpful to you. Multiple studies over the past year show that people not only view themselves as generous, but that they want to be more generous. And studies also show that living generously is good for your mental, emotional, and relational health. So regardless of whether or not you follow Jesus, these tools are going to be helpful for you if you just want to be healthy when it comes to generosity. So how do we know when helping hurts? I'm convinced that helping in the wrong way can hurt in two different ways. First of all, I believe it can help in the wrong way. Helping in the wrong way hurts us because it causes us to lose hope and become jaded toward people. Many of you know what I'm talking about because it's why you don't give cash to the homeless guy in the city. 
uh, because you're convinced they're just going to go buy more booze with it. It's why you don't give money to that family member or that friend who keeps asking you because you've seen them misuse it time after time in the past and you're just convinced they're going to do the same thing again. It's why you stop being generous at all because you got tired of being burned. Jen Hatmaker in her book, For the Love, describes a mission trip, and I'm going to have to fill in this story by actually reading it, but describes a mission trip where she um, travels to a country in Central America and paints a school year after year, only to find out that the school doesn't need to be painted year after year, but that the kids literally get it muddy before the mission trip comes, so it looks like it needs to be painted. And see, here's the thing, if that's what we call helping, then why in the world would I help? Because helping like that isn't even helpful. It, in my opinion, is just a waste of my time and my resources. And if I have to give an account one day, like Jesus talked about, of how I leverage the resources that God gave me, I don't want to say I spent thousands of dollars every year flying to a nice warm country so I could paint a freshly painted building. I'd much rather be able to say I blessed people in a way that helped restore them back to you. Which leads me to the second way that I believe helping hurts. Helping hurts when it encourages the recipient to depend on the giver instead of encouraging the the recipient to gain independence. The Apostle Paul wrote the following words to a church in Asia. He said, while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Note, it says unwilling, not unable. The physically disabled need help. It's not saying refuse help to those people. But those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work, and meddling in other people's business. One version of scripture calls these people busybodies. And Paul says, We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. So on one hand, to those unwilling to work, get over yourself and learn to earn a living for yourself. And on the other hand, those who are being generous, don't get tired of being generous. See, our call to generosity is meant to be restorative, not enabling. In their book, When Helping Hurts, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert study how to alleviate poverty without hurting the poor and ourselves in the process. What they discovered was this, is that poverty is not simply a lack of money. Or, I have a whole thing on them, hang on one second, I'm going to like just pause here because I have a thing that I want to reference. Um, poverty is not simply a lack of money, a decision of oppression by the more powerful, a result of the personal sins of the poor, or just a lack of material resource. Oh no. Poverty is not simply a lack of money, education, injustice. Okay, I'm going to clarify this, but I want to—I need your opinion on this. I want to say something. That there's four things that they give um, that if we believe the primary cause of poverty is A, then we'll try to do B. They say if the primary cause of poverty is a lack of knowledge, we'll educate. If the primary cause of poverty is oppression, then we'll work for social justice. If the primary cause is the personal sins, then we'll evangelize. If the primary cause of poverty is a lack of material resources will give them. What I'd like to say is, um, what they discovered was this, poverty is not simply a lack of money or education or justice, but that poverty is the result 
of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of sustainable wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, and prosperity. And if you think about that for a second, if poverty is rooted in the brokenness of life's most foundational relationships, that is our relationship with God, ourself, others, and the world around us, then really we have to ask this question, who are the poor? See, if we, simply re- if we, if we reduce human beings to being simply physical, as Western thought is prone to do, our poverty allevi- alleviation efforts will tend to focus on material solutions. But if we remember that humans are spiritual, social, psychological, and physical beings, our poverty alleviation efforts will be more holistic in their design and their execution. And they go on to say that if we retreat only the symptoms, or if we misdiagnose the underlying problem, we will not improve their situation, and in fact, we might actually make their lives worse. One of the major premises of the book that I think we have to recognize this morning is this. Until we embrace our mutual brokenness, until we stop seeing the people who help as us and the people who receive help as them, our work with low-income people is likely to do far more harm than good. Generosity is not simply a handout. Generosity is meant to be restorative and life-giving to both the recipient and the giver. And if we don't understand that, we're going to give in ways that lack being a blessing to both. So if generosity isn't always good, how do we minimize the risks and maximize the potential? Well, let's go back to the story of Alex Honnold for a second. Determining risk requires uh, us to evaluate two different factor, two different factors. One, the chance of things going wrong, and two, the potential consequences if things do go wrong. Let's apply that to generosity. When the chances of misspending are high, when it's a person you don't know, when it's somebody you don't trust, when it's the guy on the side of the road... Limit the consequence by limiting the generosity. I personally don't give more than $5 to somebody when I'm unsure of how they're going to use it. Why five bucks? Because I can get a meal at Chick-fil-A for five bucks and I love my strips. I value my food. So I'm not going to sacrifice something I love to somebody I'm not able to trust. I need to be able to trust that the person is going to do what they say they're going to do with my money. Two, when the potential consequences high, in other words, when the gift or the generosity is large, limit the risk by removing the chances of misspending. One of the easiest ways we can do this is by paying the collector directly. If you're helping somebody pay off their debts, write the check to the place where they owe money instead of giving it to them and hoping that they pay it there. And if the person isn't willing to receive that way or accuses you of not trusting them, that should tell you something. Inquire more and ask questions. But my suggestion, and I believe what you have to recognize in Scripture is that you have to give an account for how that money's leveraged. I wouldn't give it if you're unsure of how they're going to use it. When the potential consequence is high, limit the risk by removing the chances of misspending. When it comes to helping somebody with recurring bills, I'll tell you what our church does. We don't help somebody without evaluating their budget. See, we offer to go over their budget with them as a way to help them and get, help them and us get a clear picture of their current finances, trying to determine if this is a one-time issue where something like a medical bill or some car trouble caused them to lack the money they needed for their um, recurring bills. Or it helps us understand that this is an ongoing problem that's a result of them not making enough or possibly not managing it well. 
And in those cases, we encourage people to join Financial Peace University. It's a small group that we have here. It helps you beat debt and build wealth. And we, we encourage people to join that after they've received their first benevolence gift. And we won't give a second time unless they've gone through it. See, for us as a church, it's grace and truth. Grace means there's endless second chances, so we're always willing to help, regardless of how many times you've messed up in the past. But truth means that at times, the best way we can help is by addressing the broken patterns in somebody's life so that they can actually experience restorative change instead of just enabling them to depend on us and continuing to struggle. Okay, so how do we understand that helping can hurt, and we don't want to do that. We learn some ways that we can minimize the risk and of our generosity enabling brokenness. Wait a minute. The risk of our generosity enabling brokenness instead of fostering growth. But last week, we talked about preparing generosity so that you can give in big ways that really make a lasting difference. When do you know, how can you know, when it's time to open the floodgates of generosity and really be able to make an impact like you're hoping to? Because you know if you open the floodgates in a situation where helping hurts, you're probably going to drown people. And if you open the floodgates in a situation where the risk is too high, we won't, you're not going to help people and you're likely going to drown yourself in the process, getting frustrated and hard-hearted. Here's how you know when it's time for you to open the floodgates of generosity. Open the floodgates when you know the person or organization you trust their character and you trust their ability to manage the finances. You say, well, I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to do that. Test them. The master gave to the people based on their ability. I need to reshow that verse, but he gave to them based on their ability. And to the one who gave five to, he did well with them. And he says, I'm going to trust you with even more. To the one who he gave two to, he said, you've done well. I'm going to trust you with even more. You don't have to open the floodgates tomorrow. Build trust, not only in who they are, but in their ability to manage what they've been given. And will there be times when you get it wrong? Sure. Hopefully in those moments you've minimized the risk. Will there be times when you wish you've given more? Absolutely. The reality is you probably can. Make a note of it. If that person ever comes back to you, you'll be more generous the next time. Will there be more opportunity? Will there be opportunities that you'll miss because you give to one thing instead of another thing? Absolutely. And in those moments, you trust that God's going to provide for those people, and you choose to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Don't get caught in the trap of FOMO and never actually help anybody. But just remember this: your decision to give is between you and God. Once you give, it's between them and God. If you can, you evaluate how they leverage your generosity, but you understand that this evaluation should only be done to make decisions about future generosity, not your self-worth. If you feel like you made the wrong decision in helping somebody, you accept grace and you move forward. If you feel like you made the right decision, then you celebrate it and thank God for the opportunity he gave you. At the end of the day, we're all accountable to God for how we use what we've been given. See, to those who use well what they've been given, even more will be given, and they'll have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. The truth is, that truth is real in every area of life, not just generosity. 
We've also been entrusted with life and truth and grace and the gift of salvation. And this morning we're celebrating someone who's made this decision to accept who's made the decision to accept this gift of salvation. See, Jesus made it clear that he didn't come to rob us of our lives or just dig into our wallets, but he says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and life to the full. And he was also really clear that, that salvation comes through him alone when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father, that is, nobody gets to God except through me. And then the Apostle Paul clarifies the process for how that salvation is possible when he wrote, It's by grace that you've been saved, not of works, so that nobody has any room to boast. And then in another letter, Paul writes that if you declare that Jesus is Lord, and you believe that God brought him back to life, you will be saved. Because by believing, you receive God's approval. And by declaring your faith, you are saved. That's why we see people... The, the way we see people take that... No, sorry. The way we see people take the step of declaring Jesus as Lord and expressing their faith um, in him is through baptism. Jesus himself was baptized as an adult, as an act of obedience to God, and as a means of marking himself publicly for God's service. Tim's decision to get baptized this morning is a choice Tim is making as an act of obedience to God and as a means of letting everyone here know that he is committed to following Jesus. In some of Jesus' last words, he tells his followers to baptize them, meaning his followers, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with that said, I'm going to ask Tim to come up here and join me. You can go and climb into the baptismal. And as he's doing so, I want to tell you a little bit about Tim in case you don't know him. Tim tends to be a bit more introverted, so there's a pretty good chance that you don't really know him that well. See, Tim and I play hockey together. Hashtag go bullets. I invited Tim to check out Element one night when we were just sitting in the locker room. A few months later, Tim and his wife Jamie started attending Element. They've been coming for about a year now. They attended a bigger church in D.C., and Tim said it was the perfect place for him to explore faith from the fringes. But then Tim kept going, and he told me that Element was the place that challenged him to move his faith from the fringes and make his faith personal. And so Tim, as I get ready to baptize you, I have two questions for you this morning. Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Hopefully he'll answer yes. Is it my, is it, uh, and is it your intention to follow him for the rest of your life? Awesome. It's my pleasure to be able to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Band, take it away. Guys, I'd love to know your thoughts. I want to know what's good. I feel like there's some clunky parts in there. Um, it definitely still needs some work, so don't hesitate to tell me where it needs work. Um, where does it need a better transition? Where does it need um, different text? Where is the what I have written just not that helpful? Um, uh, I have some time tomorrow uh, and later today to work on it, so let me know. Thanks so much. Hey guys, um, so I haven't manuscripted this message completely, um, but I've got a bunch of notes on it and I think I've got enough to send it out and I just want to get some feedback. I'm going to work on uh, getting some more stuff down on paper, but my goal on Sunday is not to read from a manuscript. I think what I want to do is use an outline with some key points on it that I want to make sure I don't miss. And so um, all that to say, if you guys can just give me feedback and kind of, I'll, I'll send you an email of the, um, the notes that I have and you can just kind of fill in the gaps. Let me know what you think I'm missing. Let me know what you think I need. Um, I want to make sure it connects with people. I want to make sure, 
um, that what I have is good and just let me know what you think around the analogies. Uh, thanks so much. Um, but here goes. Uh, recently I had a, uh, recently a friend of mine, uh, lost somebody that they really cared about. They had passed away and it happened pretty suddenly. And this wasn't the first time it was like the second or third person in a, um, in a few short months that they had lost that they really cared about. And they didn't really feel like they got to say goodbye to. And in a conversation with them, I was just praying through, like, I'm, I'm trying to pastor them and I'm, I'm praying through what, what can I say to them? God, just give me some wisdom. Give me something that can help them be able to process and deal with the pain that they're experiencing. And so just, just give me something to say, because I don't want to say anything stupid. I don't know if you guys have ever been around somebody who's done that. Like, I don't want to say the dumb thing, right? So I, I just need some help. Like God, give me wisdom to give them guidance. And um, in that conversation, one of the things that they said to me is, I just don't feel like I can get my mind around this. Like, it's just so hard. It's just so unbelievable. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't feel like I can wrap my mind around this at all. And I asked them some questions and we leaned into it for a little bit. But at the end of the day, I just wonder like, have you ever been there? Like the struggles in life, the frustrations of loss, the the things that have let you down. When we talk about like the dark places, I'm not talking about like the real bright stuff that like makes us happy and full of joy. I, I mean like the hard parts of life. Have you ever been in a place where you just feel like I'm struggling to process this? Like I can't seem to get my mind around it. I don't know what to do. It's almost like we're using the wrong tool for this job called life. Have you ever felt like you just don't have the proper tool or you're not using the right tool for this job called life? Have you ever felt like maybe you're not the right tool for this job and task called life? If you've ever felt that way for the darker parts of life, this morning's message is for you. Because the wisdom I feel like God gave me in the moment of a conversation where I'm trying to comfort somebody was this. It's, you weren't designed to process this type of brokenness. It's as if you're taking a screwdriver and trying to drive in a nail. It just will eventually get you there, but it's not what it was designed to do. It's not who you were designed to be or what you were designed to accomplish. And in that moment on the phone, I don't know that it brought that much comfort, but what it did was provide a little bit of space and a little bit of grace for somebody who was being hard on themselves for not being able to get their mind around things. I was having a conversation with uh, another friend of mine who had dealt with some marital issues and some struggles and some, some betrayal and some different things that were just heavy and tough. And he said, I just don't feel like I can get my mind around it. I can't get myself out of my head about this. And I said to him, I don't think you were designed for this. And he immediately kind of like sat back and he went, that's gold right there. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, that just gives me space to like allow myself to actually process what I'm dealing with instead of stress about what I'm not able to process yet. And so if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever felt like you're, you know, you don't have the right tools for the job, or maybe you're just not right, you're not the right tool for this job called life, I want to talk to you this morning and help you understand that you're right. 
We were not designed to be able to process brokenness and pain and struggle and frustration. That's not what we were created for. And you go, that's great that that's what you think, but if that's not what I was created for, then what am I created for? If we weren't designed to process pain and brokenness, what were we designed to do? Well, here's the reality. We were designed by God for relationship with God. And then out of that relationship, we were given authority and responsibility to rule over the earth and to care for everything in it, including the rest of humanity. Let's take a look at that in Genesis 1, 27. Sorry, guys, I have to like pull it up in my phone because I don't have it ready to go. While I do that, that intro, if it's tighter, I think is a lot better. But anyway, uh, Genesis 1, 27 uh, says this. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here's the reality. You were created first and foremost as an image bearer of the one true God. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. We enjoy that. Married people love that one, right? Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given you every green plant as the food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And then he says, and this is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. I just wanted to distinguish everything else in the creation story he says was good. But when he made you, when he made me, when he makes humanity, when he creates us to bear his image and to live in relationship with him and to live out of the authority that he's given us, he says it's very good. And look at the beauty that comes from living like we were designed to live. In the next chapter, uh, continuing the story, he says this. He says, um, Adam, the man that he created, says, At last, this one, referring to Eve, his wife, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And then it says this. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I want to lean into that for a moment. Like that's beautiful and that's wonderful. And that's what we were designed for. And in Genesis two, two chapters in to the Bible, humanity is experiencing exactly what they were designed for. They're connected with one another. They're being fruitful and multiplying. In other words, if you're not catching that, they're having some fun as a married couple. They're, um, They're connected with God. They're spending time with him. And at the end of it all, they feel no shame. How amazing would that be? To not just be physically naked and not feel shame, but to be like emotionally, mentally, psychologically naked, exposed, completely authentic and not feel any shame That we wouldn't spend our days trying to hide the real us behind how well we can help others or how many trophies we earn or how unique or special we can become. That we could just put the real us out there and our friends, our families, our spouses, the God of the universe, even ourselves could look at us, look in the mirror and be satisfied with exactly what 
we see. How different would life be if shame weren't a factor? See, in the beginning, that's the way it was. Perfect, relational, and shame-free. And then something changes. In Genesis chapter 3, it says that the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, now you're going, now is the animal talking? This sounds like some weird stuff. Yeah, I don't fully get how all this goes down. All right, like I, we can debate some of this stuff and, and how real it is and, and whatever, but I, I, this is an account of what happens. I need to figure out a better way to recognize the off-ramp here, but I do want to recognize the off-ramp, but I don't want to discredit what we read in Scripture. Anyway, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. And if you do, you will die. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, diminishing what God had said to them. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. He exaggerates it. Isn't that the reality that like most times when we walk ourselves into a situation that just gets us in trouble, it's because we've diminished what we knew was true, or we've exaggerated what we knew was true, and we just chased something because we thought it was going to give us what we wanted? The woman's convinced... She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she gave, she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. In a moment, everything changes. So they sew some fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. See, this is what they were designed for. This was normal for them. Not only were they connected with one another, they were connected with the God of the universe in actual real relationship. But now, when they hear God walking, they hide from the Lord God among the trees. And then God calls out, where are you? And I don't think it's because he can't find them. It's because he can see that they're hiding. And Adam replies, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid, we're going to come back to that, because I was naked. See, the original man and woman decided to do what we've all done. They chose to step outside of God's boundaries, live life for themselves, and chase something that they thought was going to make life better, but it actually made life a whole lot worse. And similar to our stories, stepping outside of those boundaries costed them far more than they thought it would and brought on things that they never expected. Now they're dealing with something they never have dealt with before, and that thing is fear. They were afraid after they sinned. Can you imagine, let's just go back like a chapter, 10 verses. What would it be like to live life with no fear. How awesome would it be to not be trapped in our heads, consumed with the fear of what's to come. To know deep within our minds that the things that things may not turn out the way we prefer or expect, but regardless of that, regardless of that, we could be confident not in what we see, but in who we follow. 
We could lay down our need for more information and more detailed routines. We could get rid of our escapism and our pain avoidance. And we could learn. We could truly just be present. We could experience the moment and all of its greatness without the fear of being unprepared for what comes next. And that sounds nice, but is it even possible And if so, how can we get there? What can we do to make it happen so we can experience a fear-free world? Here's the reality. Absolutely nothing. We can't do anything to get back to good. No amount of effort or tape or patchwork is going to be able to fix what's already broken. Fortunately, for us and for the rest of humanity, God is willing and is able to do what we can't so that we can get back to who he designed us to be. So we can get back into relationship with him. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. I'm looking it up. Hey guys, I really want your feedback on the beginning of that. I think the content uh, is solid. I feel like it's a little bit messy right now. And I feel like the cleaner it is and the clearer it is and the better the transitions are, I think it'll be... um, Great, but hopefully you feel the same way. Uh, In any case, Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 23 says this, Christ is the visible image of an invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all of creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated, by, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand out before him with a single, without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news, um, I don't think I want verse 23. So I'm going to end it without a single fault. See, the work Jesus did on the cross and the work that God does through his resurrection is the only reason and the only way that we can return to what we were designed to do. Paul would write in Romans that if we would believe in our if we would believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, he says, you will be saved. And some of us think that's just way too simple. And I'm with you, but that is the reality. If we would recognize Jesus as Lord, not just as like our savior, not just like get out of hell free, but that like we would recognize him as like Lord, like leader of our lives. And we believe deep down within us that God actually did the impossible and raised him from the dead. Then salvation is for us. 
And out of that sacrifice, see how crazy is it that the God of the universe who doesn't need us desires to be with us enough to sacrifice his son for us. And out of that sacrifice, provide a grace that requires nothing of us. How much different could life be if we didn't spend it trying to earn what's already been given to us for free? What if we could root ourselves deep within our guts and our souls uh, that the mistake, would, would it, to root ourselves deep within our guts and even deeper within our souls that the mistakes that we've made and the tensions that they've caused aren't going to be the permanent way that things are because a good God already did a great work of providing the much needed grace so that the guilty, in other words, us, can ultimately walk freely. We can step out of our defensive posture We can set aside our anger. We can release our stress to make all things right because we can trust that God has, God is, and God will make all things right in his time. See, because of Easter, because of the resurrection, our fears can be quieted, our shame can be negated, and our guilt has been overcome. Because of Easter, we can have hope. We've been given intrinsic value, that can't be taken away, and we can walk freely. And how do we know that? How do we know that it's possible? How do we know that God is big enough and powerful enough and great enough to do that kind of work within us? Because he's the same God that takes a bloody cross and turns it into an empty tomb. And if that was it, if he stopped right there, that would be far more than we deserved and way beyond what's fair. But that isn't it. See, God looks at the people he created for communion with him. And he has compassion on us as we experience the darkness and the pain of a fallen world. And out of that compassion, he doesn't stop at providing hope for heaven one day. He gives us tools that we need to navigate the darkness currently. He doesn't just say, wait till we get there. He says, I want you to experience a better life now. You go, I need that. I need some tools to be able to navigate the darkness of what I'm experiencing. Listen, I want you to come back For our next series, it starts next week. It's called Navigating the Darkness. What to do when the lights don't come on in life. We're going to go through some of those tools that God lays out for us. Things that begin to light our path. Things that begin to help us move forward. Things that begin to help us stop banging in nails with screwdrivers and getting so frustrated that we just don't feel like we have what it takes. God is not only great enough to save us from the pain of hell, He is good enough to save us from the pain of life. So I want to challenge you to come back and be a part of this series. But regardless of whether you do that or not, I want to challenge you this morning to take a moment and recognize that the God of the universe cared for you enough to sacrifice His Son so that you could be reconciled back to Him. So if you've been stressing, if you've been frustrated, if you've felt so disconnected from where you were originally created to be, it's because you have been. But a really good God, great enough to do what it takes to redeem you, says, I love you and I desire you. Come home.
See, Element exists to help God's lost kids come home. And I don't want you to walk out of here this morning confused about that or continuing to be lost. So let today be the day where you check the box on your connection card that says, I want to accept Christ as my Savior and get baptized. Let's have a conversation this week and let's walk through exactly what that means. I feel like I need to just explain exactly what it means. I don't need to leave it that open because I have some time right here to be able to do it. But I want to do that. I'm going to intro communion. um, And that's what I've got right now. That is short and needs to be fleshed out some more and some things need to be cut. But hopefully you guys can help me out. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for giving me your feedback. Um, Here's my goal. I'm going to send this out today. My hope is that you can get me some stuff by tomorrow. I'm going to re-record it on Thursday or Friday morning. And if you can take a listen before the weekend or kind of like um, before like Saturday at say, let's say like 930, um, that will be really helpful for me because then I'll make final edits and get it to Devin um, in time on Saturday. Thanks so much. Bye.